This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Lucky you. Welcome back to Big Mood, Little Mood. I am your host, Danny M. Lavery, and with me in the studio this week is Kat Kinsman, the executive features editor at Food & Wine, author of High Anxiety, Life with a Bad Case of Nerves, and founder of Chefs with Issues, an ever-evolving project that addresses the mental health crisis in the hospitality industry. Kat, welcome to the show. Oh, Danny, I am so delighted to be here. I am so delighted. Uh, the last time you and I collaborated on anything, we produced a uh, real fun article about the food at medieval times. And so I'm excited to see what we can do today. And I just want to say for a sec, I love the story that you wrote. And I would love for everybody to go and see it because who doesn't <laughs> want to go to medieval times? And you were so, so gleeful about it. And this is the experience that I need as an adult. And I can't even imagine how you must have upped their bottom line from people needing to rush there immediately. I don't know about that. I mean, I don't know that I want to get in bed with corporate medieval times, but it is amazing to me how it's like, you know how at different stages of like embryonic development, humans will have like um, vestigial uh, stages. They go like there's a moment in embryonic development where you have like a tail. Um, and it, it does feel like medieval times is that like it is a vestigial remnant of like the 80s heyday of theme restaurants. And like all of the context that made it make sense is gone. And all we have left is like some lore about like what dinner theater briefly evolved into before vanishing um, back into the millennia. Um, but but medieval time still stands. And it somehow still taps into that primordial stable ooze. I was in a, a van full of chefs this weekend and somehow it came up. I was in Houston and I believe there's probably one near there. I should check your exhaustive list of locations there. And everybody in the car said, ooh, medieval times, is that still around it? And had some sort of really visceral memory of either wanting to go or having been and gnawed on giant joints of meat. And there's you you captured it really beautifully. I think you said it had the ethos of a spirit Halloween. Yeah. Well, not only uh, if you were in Dallas, were you relatively near the Dallas location? You were probably also not too far from the ranch where Medieval Times is, as you know, the largest breeder of uh, Andalusian horses in the United States. Well, I hadn't known that until you informed me. <laughs> and because I was, you were talking about the embryonic development of, of things. I think I was hardwired to be, I grew up in Kentucky. I was hardwired to be a horse girl mm. or I aspired to be a horse girl. A friend of mine had an actual horse and I couldn't have been more jealous. That's pretty serious. Yeah, I don't think they were especially serious about it. And it was sort of, maybe their horse in name only. Um, maybe it was the uh, bad coworker of the person who you cited in in your story who said that their best coworker was a horse and their worst coworker was a different horse. That, I hope so. <laughs> a person can dream, but I was one of those those uh, horse girls. So that it has always appealed to me, but I didn't come from a theme restaurant going family. So I have missed, and I think you need to take me. I absolutely will. It is a done deal. It will happen. <laughs> um, on a slightly different tack before we jump into the letter, uh, the title of your book, is it a Mel Brooks reference or no? It was. It uh, came to me as I was brushing my teeth. I had just been out with my editor and she said, you know, start scheming on this and uh, on uh, on the title. And I hadn't, first of all, I hadn't meant to write a book about anxiety. And she said, no, that's what you're doing. So 
that's what happened. I was brushing my teeth and I believe I spat out my toothpaste in a blast of <laughs> insight and genius or something like that. And it just delighted me uh, mm-hmm. because I've always loved Mel Brooks. And it, uh, you know, whenever I pronounce it, I say, hi, anxiety, hi, comma, anxiety. Perfect. Uh, which is not to be read. So I just try to punctuate uh, with my voice there. I mean, that's just brilliantly done. It's such a solid movie too. I think I I didn't see it until later and had given it like mentally some short shrift feeling strongly about like Young Frankenstein and and Blazing Saddles. But like even just like the Psychoneurotic Institute for the Very, Very Nervous, that's just a great line. (laughs) That's just terrific. Like as establishing shots go, you're you're coming out strong. It was that and and not Mel Brooks, but that movie, uh, Crazy People as well, uh, somehow stuck into my psyche. Was that Albert Brooks, maybe? Was that around the same time, late 70s? It was It was a bit was a little later, later, right? Yeah, I think so. But I, it was very formative and it, it uh, to me. And it was a bunch of people in an institution writing ads for things. Oh, God. If you haven't oh, seen it yeah, recently, please. Oh, yeah, that was Dudley Moore and Daryl Hannah. Yes. And Paul oh, Reiser. All wow. Are. All-star cast. Oh my goodness. And there, I feel, and one, Paul Reiser's having a moment right now, but. Thank God. uh, Yeah. Oh, yes. Yes. I used to think, what do you do with Paul Reiser? Now we all know. We make him profane. When uh, when I was a kid, like in the early 90s, he he came out with like a couple of books right in a row, like couplehood and then I think parenthood. (laughs) And it was just this like, like it's charming, but it's like a pretty middle of the road, like gentle mid-90s, you know, Mad About You style, like, riffs on parenthood. And I just read that book over and over again when I was, like, 11 years old. And I was just like, this is the funniest book I've ever read. I had the biggest crush on him. He's, like, on the cover. It's just him, like, resting his head against his hand, like, wearing, I want to say, like, a turtleneck and a blazer. And I just was like, give me more of that, please. I'm going to confess something to you that I've never confessed to anyone anywhere. Okay. I was in the early days of Amazon.com. I left a snide review about it because I was, you know, a snotty art kid thinking, oh, this is so middle brow. This is so like something. I forget exactly what I said, but it was so rude and it was so terrible. And I would never do that again. And I want to go back and apologize to Paul Reiser for me being snotty. These are like the the stages of development, right? Like (laughs) I was a couple, I was like two or three years younger. So I was like fixated. Uh, and then you were needing to differentiate yourself. This was just about the stages mm-hmm. of development. You're doing great. Do we have a riser scale of development for, for we're, people? We're going to at the end of the day. Um, okay, <laughs> I will get us into the, it's riser. <laughs> I will get us into the questions shortly. But now I'm trying to think. Like it feels like between like the late 70s and the early 90s, there was a real stretch of like mid-budget, like, psychiatric humor movies. Like, I think of these, I think of, like, mm-hmm. What About Bob, which I recently rewatched, and I think really just, like, holds up as, like, a pretty solid comedy. Do you remember that one? Is this one where uh, they the person hitched along to their therapist's farm or something like that? So it's okay. Bill, Bill Murray um, and um, Richard Dreyfus. But it, yes. you know, it's really like it's for Richard Dreyfus because like his unbelievably like taught disintegration as like, I don't know if like you combined like Frasier with like a really gruff attack dog. That's what it feels like his performance is. And he's just spectacular in it. 
was he called an analyst in it or a psychiatrist? But it was a there was a particular boom time of this year, correct? And there, well, I mean, we had Newhart mm-hmm. on there, mm-hmm. you know, a, a classic of the genre, and it was. You know, it was it was different language. It was different degrees of empathy going on at the time. And it was all the sort of butterfly nets and people running around on the lawn wearing white clothing kind of thing. Exactly. And, yeah. No, it was fantastic. And I highly recommend that uh, everybody listening go see it as soon as possible. But uh, in the meantime, we should probably try to answer some questions rather than just recommend goofy jokes about uh, mental health. Would you uh, please read our first letter? Yes. Subjects. I do support your dreams. I just know you're going to fail. My partner is wonderful, and we have a smooth and joyful relationship. The only problem is his job, which is basically half customer service, half IT guy. The pay is terrible, and there is no opportunity for upward mobility. This is partly because my partner never finished college due to overwhelming anxiety brought on by a truly traumatic event. He does not want to return to school. Ostensibly, my partner's dream is to become a computer programmer through self-study, and he studies constantly during his free time. This has been going on for two and a half years now, but if I'm being brutally honest, he's not that good at it, and I don't think he will ever be good enough. I know how to program, and he's simply too slow, taking days to do what should have been done in hours or less. My partner has many other fabulous qualities and is by no means dull. He's just not a computer programmer. Recently, I've been getting frustrated when he wants to study instead of spending time with me. Should I support his dream, even though I know it will never come true? Being honest about his prospects seems cruel, but so too does letting him study his life away for a job that will never materialize. For what it's worth, we are both men and I'm an engineer. Well, where where do you want to start with this one? Well, to me, there is... Something that is jabbing out uh, and, uh, you know, it's bright red and it's flashing and it's the almost brushed by, never finished college due to overwhelming anxiety brought on by a truly traumatic event. I think that probably informs everything that comes before and after, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I was really curious about that one, too. They don't say, like, he doesn't mention whether or not his partner sees a therapist or a psychiatrist or takes medication or does any sort of, like, anything to address his, like, serious anxiety aside from don't attend college anymore. But yeah, that that strikes me as an extremely relevant question. Yeah, because if you are, okay, I don't want to do the steps to do this particular thing that has very concrete steps in a way that maybe other professions do not there you can have a, a you know be a journeyman on you know some other kind of job or you know have a job that doesn't involve you know a huge amount of training or there are other things that you can do by osmosis or volunteer all these things this one in particular is hinged on knowing very very particular textbook things mm-hmm. and it seems it would seem to me that it would be to return to school so and it's it seems to be that you know this person, if they are wanting to do this thing and is unwilling to take the steps, do they really want to do it? This the letter writer said it's their dream, but is that is is it really a dream or is it their way of attempting to I don't know emulate what their partner does or have some sort of way forward without actually having to commit to it in a way that would involve school? It just feels like there are a lot of factors, and also I want to note when you're bad at something, you know it, you know it. 
you feel it. Well, that's part of why I was so curious to try to figure out whether the partner in question is getting any kind of like additional help with his anxiety. Because like Mm -hmm. there are also ways that I could imagine this sort of like obsessive studying and and taking a really long time to complete tasks might be in some way. And again, like I don't want to say like obviously he's just doing this so that he can like self-soothe by like coding slowly or whatever. And my apologies if coding isn't the same as programming. I don't know the difference and I don't wish to know. But you know, one of the things that I do think can be true is like, uh, you know, the hallmark of incompetence is the ability to recognize itself. So I, I do think it's possible if he's never worked in this field, it doesn't sound like he knows anyone in this field. It doesn't sound like he's got like a mentor or is like trying to benchmark his progress. I do want to leave room for the possibility that I, I, I think it's probable that on some level he's aware he's not making much progress, but I think it is possible that he doesn't fully realize how um, bad at this he is. And I don't mean like could never get better, is garbage, should never have tried it in the first place, just like is way off the benchmark. Yeah, I wonder that, you know, the partner is saying that they have particular authority in this field. Like, I mean, there's a reason that I didn't really date all that many other writers and editors um, because it's, that's, it's a stressful thing if you're both in the same field but you know it sounds like they the, so the person the letter writer does have some actual metric for what this looks like but i'm i would be curious to find out if the partner who is is doing all the studying has somebody else giving them feedback as well or if it is only through the lens of the letter writer right. if they have been doing this and have gotten no positive feedback other than from someone who wants to take their money by ostensibly running some sort of uh, training program is anybody else in the world telling them this? Would it be worth it to, I don't know, talk with their, you know, their partner's uh, friends or, you know, sniff around grades? I don't know. It, it, it feels, you know, I, I know that sometimes when I get into a place of stuckness and anxiety about having to try something new, and especially if there's some sort of you know, sunk cost into it. Um, I find I, I, I nest my procrastination. Mm-hmm. I do something that I know is a concrete task with a particular end goal to it that I can do. Boop, boop, boop. Here are the steps mm-hmm. that I need to do to keep myself on track for this particular thing. And if there are these, you know, comforting guards, they might not want to step outside of of this thing because that is really an incredibly terrifying thing to have to do. And especially if he's been spending all this time, he might feel a fool if he happens, you know, if he happens to understand that he's not so great at it, if he's embarrassed, if he abandons the mission at this point, that's a terrifying thing to do. And you're really worried that everybody else will judge you and the world will think poorly. And the truth is, if they see you suffering, they want you to stop doing that thing. And also, they probably haven't been paying that much attention to it. No one fixates on our own stuff as much as we do. Nobody's going to be thinking, oh, you know, sir, oh, you failed with this or anything like that. They'll just think, oh, it wasn't for him. He decided to move on for something. So it's getting past maybe some of the shame and, and, and fear of abandoning that safe course that he's put a lot of time into. And so, of course, I realize a lot of this, you know, I feel like we're on relatively solid ground speculating, but we are speculating. So in terms of what I want to advise this letter writer to do, I don't think it's go to your partner and say, hey, I think you're never going to be a programmer and I suspect that you're not getting enough treatment for your anxiety. Here's what you should do now. It sounds like maybe the letter writer has not had 
many conversations, possibly any conversations with his partner where he offered input into this profession or into how his partner handles his anxiety. So obviously, like when that is the case, you don't want to come in too hot. You want to come in with like one or two open-ended questions and then to ask, I I, I would like to encourage you to consider something, but but no more than that. So I think number one letter writer, I would encourage you to talk to your partner about, hey, how do you generally feel outside of like not going back to college? Your anxiety is going um, like, do you feel like you're getting good care? Do you feel like you're you're coping well? Do you feel good? I, you know, I just want to know more and, and maybe like have a little bit of that conversation first. And then you can also, I think, again, like it's it's appropriate. You've been dating a long time. He's been doing this for two and a half years. It's fine to check in and say something like, how do you feel like your progress is going? You know, do you feel like you're any closer to a sense of what your next goal is? Or like, is it a job? Is it a, a test? Is it is it talking to somebody else in the industry? Like, how do you feel about that? And again, if he's just like, I haven't really thought about that. I've been feeling kind of tunnel vision. I've just been like trying to study. You know, you might be able to offer some expertise. You might be able to make a suggestion where he might be able to talk to somebody else in the industry and get maybe some of that like harsher truths from somebody who's not also his partner that he wants to turn to for support. That doesn't mean you can't be honest if and when it comes up about like the pace at which you are progressing is not enough to get you a job in the next five years. But I would stop short of saying something like, I don't think you'll ever be good enough, like straight off the bat. Um, I think you can, you can, rein some of that in, at least at the level of affect. Absolutely. Because I remember every critical thing that a partner has you know, said to me and they had different motivations for doing it. Uh, you know, I, when I did date people who were also, you know, visual artists or writers, it, you know, it took a different weight on because in one way I knew, you know, that they knew, uh, you know, the context for what I was doing and and all that. And part of me wondered about, is there some level of competition going on here as well? So, you know, so, so there's, there's some of that, but I, with my particular brain, I always interpreted, you know, a lot of this as, well, you don't have faith in me. You don't believe in me. And whether that was true or not, that is what my anxious brain um, was doing there. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I've been on both sides of the relationship with anxiety. I've been the partner and I've been the person who has anxiety as well. And, you know, and it's an incredibly difficult and and tricky thing to be the partner of somebody with anxiety because they're going to do things that make absolutely no sense, but for some reason offer some degree of comfort and safety to them. So if they have been caught up in this routine, maybe that is that, that comfortable and safe thing. And you know, also looking at the letter, it says this has been going on for two and a half years. Well, guess what else has been by this point? It seems like the timeline, uh, I'm assuming that this, some of this stuff started during pandemic time when we were all having our anxiety circuits overwhelmed and so many people clung to routine and they clung to safety because we didn't know what was happening next. And you know, I have my little tasks that I have to do every day that keep me tethered. I do Duolingo, I do Wordle and send my scores to a friend. I do Spelling Bee and I just have these little rites and rituals. And I, and it's terrifying if I am knocked off some of those kind of things because it's been, the world has been spinning so fast and those are some of the things that have kept me anchored. And to be a person and to be shaken out of that is a tremendously, you know, terrifying thing to do. And 
if this is school specific, I would want to know, did something, you know, happen, you know, with school at the beginning of the, of the pandemic to make this happen? And, you know, I just, I have such empathy for the irrationality of anxious people um, and what needs to be done to be safe. Um, but I, I feel like if you're, you know, this, this falls into a couple different buckets, but if you are saying to your partner who has anxiety, um, it's, it's hard work being an anxious person because you feel so embarrassed by it, or at least I always felt, you know, have, you know so I started talking about it really loudly, was always mm-hmm. incredibly embarrassed by it because I couldn't do things that normal people did. Leave my house or, you know, sometimes, you know, just things that people might take as commonplace. I just couldn't do them. And it's mortifying when somebody calls you on that, when they see that, you know, I've scratched open my thumb or that I'm having, a, I'm late because I couldn't leave the house because of panic. It's absolutely mortifying. So when they do talk to their partner about it, they have to make them feel as safe as possible and, you know, front load it with, I believe in you. I, you know, believe, I believe in you. I love you. Nothing is going to change my love of you. This maybe this thing doesn't necessarily seem to be making you happy. What are the things that are making you happy that you would like to explore? How can I help you and empower you? Yeah. And I feel like to that end, you know, the question of like, you know, your partner has a terrible job with no opportunity for upward mobility might also be useful to talk about other just jobs that he might want to try to apply for that are something in between stay at this awful job until someday when I'm a good programmer, which might be years and years if it ever happens, because that just feels really interminable. And then I I feel like I've kind of missed the biggest question, which the letter writer mentioned towards the end, which was, uh, I've been getting frustrated when he wants to study instead of spending time with me. Mm. And I think that's what had led me kind of in the direction of like anxiousness. Because again, if, you're, if your boyfriend is all aware that he's not up to snuff and he's spending more and more and more time flailing to the like detriment of the time you two spend together, it's possible that on some level he is like doing this like as an anxiogenic cycle of I, I need to do this more, I need to do this more. It's becoming like a little compulsive. And I don't know for sure that that's the case. But, you know, I think you would have grounds to bring that up even if he were a great programmer, right? Like even if he was programming at a blistering pace and was doing really well, if he was always um, choosing that over time with the two of you, you would probably want to talk to him about it then too. So again, you don't have to frame the request to spend more time together as because you're not doing a good enough job, you should instead hang out with me. If you were good at it, I wouldn't mind. So so keep that one really, I, I think, separate from the other stuff about how he feels about his overall progress. I think to just also say, like, I would love to spend more time together. I feel frustrated that I don't see you as much as I used to. I miss it. Can we, like, schedule more regular date nights? Or, you know, is there a way that we can kind of renegotiate some of this time? Because, again, I don't know that you're immediately going to, in one conversation, get him to say, you're right, this has been a total dead end. I'm going to go to therapy, stop trying to program and get a new job and also like spend a ton of time just like hanging out with you. That'd be amazing. But um, I don't think that's a super likely first outcome. But I think one thing you can hopefully achieve is let him know that you miss him and start spending some more quality time together. And then two, just like offer your uh, availability as a sounding board and for some, you know, modulated critique if he wants to check in more about his career. But if he's really like avoidant or defensive or doesn't want to, I think don't push it. Like just stay pretty neutral on that front and and stay focused on what, what you do want, which is 
to spend more time together. And if he's just like, no, 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 I'm going to get this. I'm going to become an amazing programmer. He'll, he'll find that out from the world soon enough, I think. Yeah. Sometimes you have to let somebody you love flail a bit, and that's really painful to watch. But I, th- I think there's an opportunity here to lead with joy and celebration. I love spending time with you. Oh my gosh, I wish we had more of that to do. And also, you know, I, I, I see you working so hard and, you know, and I, I just, does it, you know, does it bring you joy? What are the things, you know, that we can do to celebrate and, you know, and enhance your life? And, you know, sometimes, you know, it seems like you, you seem so fixated on this and stuff. And I, I want to make sure that it's bringing you pleasure and joy. Is it? And offer them an out yeah. uh, that way, you know, and really celebrate it. Like, I'm not trying to fix you. Like, that's the thing. I think it needs to not come from a, well, you, I don't like this thing about you. You have to fix it. Instead, it's, you know, how can I make you a happier person? How can I help guide you there? And I think that that is a really, really loving way of, of, of doing it. And just so like, I see all these beautiful things in you and I want to celebrate the, those things and celebrate us and get us to a place where we're both feeling really fulfilled and, and happy. How can I help you get there? Yeah, and sometimes it can come as a real relief to admit to someone, I'm not doing a good job at this. Like, this isn't getting better. (laughs) And I do hope that that eventually can become an outcome here. You know, I could also see a situation where, like, if you do try to lead with a lot of, like, warmth and celebration, he feels a little bit like, you know, it's, it's, it's potentially something that he could experience as condescending. Like, if you know you're really struggling and someone comes and says, like, you're doing great, I love you, I value you, sometimes that can, like, exacerbate the defensiveness. And it's like, you wouldn't say that if I were doing well. But again, it's, it really sounds like this letter writer really loves his partner. It doesn't sound like his partner's been super, super defensive. It just sounds like it's a slightly fraught topic. But as long as you don't go in with like, you suck at this, <laughs> get over it. Um, I think he'll probably be able to to hear some of this advice and um, write us back. Let us know how this conversation goes. I would love to know more about what other options feel available to the two of you. And I think with that, I will oh, I will move on to our second letter. Sorry to Ooh, like, bark laughter. But this <laughs> one's really just like, oh, this one's tricky. So this one's a little heavy. Um, I really feel for this letter writer. I hope we can offer them some potentially useful advice. And um, yeah, I will long for the genteel days of my boyfriend sucks at programming. <laughs> okay, so the subject is tense family ties. I, 23, they, them, have a complicated relationship with my oldest brother, Tom. We had a pretty rough childhood, and when I was severely depressed, Tom was the only one I could talk to about it. I always wanted to be good friends when we were kids, but since I was five years younger, I was more of a pesky kid to him, although we're friends now. He's the first in our family to use my chosen name and validate my queerness, and he's always been a help when I need to vent about our parents and get support. There's an elephant in the room, though. Tom held me down and molested me at least twice when I was younger than eight. I don't remember everything about it, but I know that he did it under the guise of quote-unquote tickling. My biggest anxiety is that there's something more or something else worse that I don't remember. Now, Tom is firmly against sexual assaults and has been helping his wife process her own traumas from a prior relationship in a really great understanding way. I know he was still a child at the time and was probably curious. However, he knew that I admired him and used it to manipulate me, and this has had repercussions in my romantic life as an adult. I don't know what to do with my memories. It seems unlikely that he doesn't remember, but I can imagine he wouldn't want to broach the subject himself, possibly out of a worry it would trigger me. I'm sure he feels really guilty about it. 
I dislike having this elephant in the room, but I also feel extremely anxious at the idea of discussing it with him. I can only imagine being able to text about it with him, but that hardly seems like an appropriate method for that kind of conversation. I feel like I won't be able to move on until I bring this up with him, but I'm terrified of losing our friendship. I also don't know if it's productive to remind him of something he probably already regrets, especially if the only outcome is that things stay pretty much the same, that we both know this happened and both wish it hadn't. How can I get clear on my goals for this conversation and how do I have it in a way that isn't horribly awkward and just bad for both of us? Mm. I, you know, uh, shockingly, I I feel a lot of like warmth and compassion for this letter writer. Um, I I found the way that they were thinking about this really um, thorough, conscientious, caring. Um, They seem like a really lovely person. And I just really, really, really wish nothing but the best for you, letter writer. My first thought as I was reading this was, I don't know if you have ever talked about this with anyone else. And I wonder if if your goal is to have this conversation with Tom, whether or not it might benefit you to first have a version of this conversation with either a trusted close friend or a therapist or a, a member of a support group. And again, like with the express goal of my plan is to talk to Tom about this and first clarify what my hopes are for that conversation, what I might want from him, um, what I might want for myself and how I will like continue to take care of myself throughout what will be, you know, a a challenging process. Um, Because I think it will help you to feel like you have people to talk about this with in an ongoing way, not just write to an advice columnist and, and hear back once. Yeah, I feel such tenderness toward this person. My goodness. Um, mm-hmm. And I just, I, and letter writer, I want the best and, and safest and kindest and gentlest full blanket for you, for you to be safe. I'm, I'm so sorry that you had to grow up in this family dynamic and have this weighing on you for such a long time. Um, please know you're, you're not alone. And, and so many people are, you know, here to embrace you and, and, You've shared this this with us, and I'm I'm so grateful um, because I hope you can let let down the burden some of have, having to live with this because it seems from all of this and you know you seem like such a kind and compassionate person and it feels like you've been bearing the weight for a lot of people like for yourself and for Tom and maybe for other members of your family and that is kind and generous of you to do it and. I also know that trauma bonding, you know, with with somebody who you grew up with is a really incredibly powerful and validating thing in so many ways. Um, you know, I, I come from a family where there, there, there wasn't this, but there was mental illness and, and various other things. And I jokingly refer to my sister as the other witness mm. because she is the only other person on earth who knows exactly how it is. And I know that I've said things to her. I just remember her validating me as it was, you know, such and such, you know, situation, you know, as bad as I thought. And she said, yes. And that, and just hearing that changed everything for me to, so I, I understand what it's like to have somebody who understands the circumstances of painful things that have happened in your family. And I also know that for my sister and me, we developed in opposition because we were both, we did not get along growing up whatsoever and fused much later in life um, because I was able to look back and say, well, we we were both just trying to survive a difficult situation in a lot of ways. Many things were good, but some things were incredibly painful and we each found ways to cope and uh, and, and do that. And, and 
you know, we all find uh, different ways to do that. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm seeing a lot of in here, you, you saying, well, you know, I know he must remember. I know he, you know, must have all of these kind of things, um, a coping mechanism. He may, you can't count on the fact that he does because, I, again, I read that all, similarly. Yeah, because you, you don't know because minds are these beautiful, elastic, ever-changing things that adapt in response to, you know, in the same way that our bodies get scars in places that have been, you know, shredded and scraped and opened up and they get tougher when the skin grows back. You know, the mind adapts in those particular kinds of ways. So you can't take for granted that he remembers uh, things the same way that you did. Um, My instinct here is, I know you don't want to lose this relationship right now, make anybody feel awkward, but you have to take care of yourself with this. And I think that has to be done separately from him right now. And if you have not talked to a therapist, especially one who is trauma-informed and deals with sexual assault, um, it's definitely time to do that. And there are so many free and no cost resources uh, out there that you can, that you can go to and, and healing groups too, to help you validate what your, your trauma is here. But I, w- I would encourage you to leave him out of the equation, at least for a moment. Even if you have to go dark on him, it sounds like you're very concerned about his feelings and upsetting him when this thing, no matter his motivations, no matter if he was young and experimenting, no matter whatever, it still happened to you. Mm-hmm. It still happened to you and it is real. And even if it's just kids, kids can wound each other so deeply and traumatically for the rest of their lives. And I think for right now, you have to risk the radio silence from him and just concentrate on some of your own healing before you can get to a place where this conversation can even be had with him. And I would even possibly suggest having, you know, a counselor, a mediator, somebody like, you know, somebody else like that, you know, in the room. So you were both heard Mm. in the way that you want to. And so you don't go to a place of trying to just automatically making him feel better about what happened. Um, so I, I would start with that. Yeah. Yeah, I really understand why this letter writer feels anxious. On top of all of what we've already discussed, they also mentioned that uh, Tom is the only member of their family who uses their chosen name and was the first to validate their queerness and that he's often been a source of support when the letter writer needs to vent about their parents. So there's also that real sense of like our present relationship now is is maybe one of the only uh, ones in, in within our family that feels like relatively okay for me. And I'm really afraid that if I test that and that changes, that I won't have anyone within my family. And I, I get that. I really do. And that's part of why I really want to encourage reaching out for support among your peers, um, finding a, a trauma-informed therapist will will go some way towards making making that step a little bit easier. Because again, I, I also hope, letter writer, that you're able to have this conversation at some point, um, that Tom is able to listen to you, that Tom is able to um, offer meaningful, ongoing amends um, and and reckon with, you know, the, the abuse that he committed against you, which is not, I, I, I really get that you want to try to put this in context and, and um, focus on like how this only happened a few times and how you were both young. Um, and I, I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to take that away from you at all, but for him to really reckon with, he still did that and, and that it wouldn't just be something that would go away with, wow, I'm really sorry. Thanks for telling me we're great now, um, that it'll take a little longer than that. And, and I, I agree, you know, um, Kat, what you were saying, like, I think that 
the person you've described sounds like a pretty empathetic, caring person. But I, I think there's also that sort of, it's almost like you're trying to talk yourself out of doing it because it's like, I know he remembers. I know he feels bad. If we talk about it, it'll just be the exact same as it is now where we both remember and we both feel the same way about it. Therefore, maybe I don't have to. When I think, of course, you know, the reason that you have been thinking about having this conversation with him is because you wonder, does he remember? And if he does remember, does he remember it the way I remember it? And would he admit it if I asked him? And would he get defensive or avoidant or lie if I asked him? That's, I think, the fear, which is I have this good brother right now. But if I ever mention the fact that he molested me when we were children, he will stop being my good brother and I will have no good relatives left. And it will be just me, 23, with nobody. Um, and that fear is real. And I, I, I hope that that's not the reaction that you get. But that's why, again, I really want to stress finding additional outside support. I want to mention just a couple of, again, I want you to do a lot of like research of, of support groups in your area. But a couple of places that you can start is, is the RAIN network, which is the um, Rape, Abuse, and Incest uh, National Network. Um, and that's just RAIN, R-A-I-N-N.org. Um, that has a lot of different resources. There are also um, some different support groups um, that I'm aware of. There's Survivors of Incest Anonymous, um, which is S-I-A-W-S-O dot org. And that has uh, both like in-person and online meetings um, nationally, as well as like other literature. I believe they're like lightly modeled after 12-step programs. So there might be a spiritual component. I don't know to what degree that that would be welcome to you. I, I'm not more familiar with this organization beyond just being dimly aware of them. So just flagging that in case that's something that doesn't work for you. There's also uh, an organization called Hidden Water, which offers support groups and peer-led groups um, for different levels. Like, So they have circles that are for people who have been victims of abuse. They have support groups, for, and they're separate. Each one is separate. Like You would only be in a group with other survivors. Um, they have separate groups sometimes for um, family members of someone who has been harmed or somebody else who has molested or abused somebody else. And they also have separate circles for people who have abused or molested people and who want to change. Um, again, those are distinct groups. You would never be placed in in groups uh, with anybody outside of your individual cohort. But since you mentioned like what might be something that could happen as a result of this conversation, you might look into this organization or other similar organizations and you might want, and Tom might want, um, to get specific help for himself. And um, again, none of those are like a personal endorsement in terms of like, I think you should follow one or the other. Those are just some of the organizations that I'm generally aware of and would recommend checking out. And if you see them and you're just like, oh, I don't share these values or this doesn't look right for me, keep looking by all means, but find a support group that you can do business with. And, and you know, just think ahead too, as you plan for this conversation, what could Tom say that I would need to pause the conversation and say, let's check in again another time? What could Tom say that would make me say, I, I need you to stop talking? What would be the worst reaction that he could have? What would be the best reaction that he could have? And also, I hope, remind yourself that you don't necessarily have to come up with a comprehensive plan of rehabilitation for him. Like you want to share with him the way that he hurts you and the way that had repercussions in your adult life. I don't want you to also give yourself the additional burden of, if I bring this up, I better have a plan for making sure that he can feel good about himself again. Right. I mean, it's back to the old cliche of put your own mask on before helping others. 
it is not your job. I was raised hardcore Catholic, so this is hard for me to say, but it is not (laughs) your job to make somebody who hurt you feel better. That is not on you. You are allowed to be hurt. And it's, it's so scary to get to that place to allow yourself anger and upset. And th- that can be a really, really hard time. Uh, you know, dep- some people have no problem with that. And I want whatever they're having <laughs> because, you know, I was always turn the other cheek. How do I mollify this person? How do I keep everybody from getting upset or awkwardness? And, you know, you brought up the, the word awkward. So I, you know, I mostly, when I, when I speak about mental health, a lot of it is for, you know, chefs and for the restaurant industry, but I give a talk called an awkward conversation will not kill you. You know, it, it can raise a whole lot of things, but, you know, it, it awkwardness is okay. It's really a beautiful thing in, in so many ways because it might make you feel like absolute hell in the moment. But what it does is crack open some hidden places that now can heal. You know, there, there can be some, some light in there. There can be some healing. And we just have to, you know, we've, we've been trained as a, a society to think like, oh, the worst thing that I can do is make somebody else feel awkward or feel bad. Like some people should feel bad, like honestly. And I know that you have compassion because, you know, your brother had a, a rough childhood as well, but it's not your job to have to then tamp down everything that you are, that you are feeling. And, you know, and I know that Tom is your family member, but chosen family is a real and beautiful thing that has saved so many people's lives that I understand wanting to have that other person there who, you know, was there for you and you were deeply depressed and saw, you know, what you went through going up. And it is complicated by the fact that this person also hurts you and, you know, and you don't know what they're going to say if if it's going to be a complete denial or non-remembrance. And then do you go to, into a tailspin, tailspin of second guessing if something already happened? So I think working a lot of this stuff out with a therapist and even really having a mediator there when you're having this conversation, I think is incredibly important because, you know, you do want to, you're a compassionate person who wants to take care of other people. And you may run into the real possibility that he says it never happened or that he doesn't remember it, that doesn't mean it didn't happen at all. And, you know, having a professional there is a really, you know, good thing. And if you are afraid of being cut off from your family, please know that there are so many other ways to create family. I think so many people have had to put up walls with their family because their family is a source of, of harm and, and pain and it, can, and it goes against the social narrative to eschew, you know, a person's parents or, or or their siblings or their aunts, their uncles, whatever. But, you know, blood doesn't necessarily mean virtue and obligation if it is a source of harm to you. If this is the one person, um, there are so many other people out there who you can rely on for, to be present for you, to show up for you, to be that that other thing, that that role that a family fills. Um, and, and I would really, really encourage you to shore that up in your life. However it happens to look, it might not look like that regular narrative, but it doesn't for a whole lot of us. And that is absolutely valid and and okay and and beautiful. And chosen family is not less than blood family in, in any way. Again, yeah, if you hear all this uh, letter writer and you're just like, this sounds so fucking intense, I can't stand it. You don't have to do any of this. Nope. So uh, <laughs> these are all options available to you. 
And I want you to feel really free to continue thinking about what this kind of conversation might look like. But I just really want to stress, if you hear this and you're just like, my stomach just fell out through my feet. It's your call. You get to have this conversation when you want um, and on your own terms. And that includes, by the way, letter writer, you say, I can't really imagine having this conversation over text. And I fully get that for, for a number of reasons. But I imagine at least part of what texting would be able to do for you would be it would enable you to say something really difficult without having to, you know, be in the same room as the person who molested you and without worrying you might get interrupted, without worrying, you know, if he says it didn't happen and I'm just in the room with him, what'll I do? Like it does put some, you know, valuable distance in between you and his reaction. So if you do decide you want to pursue it and you want to initiate it over text, I think that's pretty understandable. And again, that doesn't mean you have to like have the whole talk over text, but if you want to like name the subject and ask about his willingness to meet with you and discuss it, and you would like to start it over text, you can. And you can also do it while acknowledging, uh, you know, I realize it's difficult to discuss over text, but I really needed this distance in order to ask you. That that would make a lot of sense. That's okay. That's allowed. Uh, again, you know, you didn't, not to be flippant, but like, you didn't ask to get molested. You get to decide like how to talk about getting molested as an adult in ways that work for you. I I, I really want you to think of it in in those terms. Like, I didn't ask to get molested. If I want to talk about it now, it's going to be on my terms. Right. Um, that's a pretty reasonable uh, ask, I think. I th- I also think it might be good, like script it for yourself. Write a script. Yeah. You know, it, like think run about that therapist. Run it past that support group. Write multiple drafts. Yeah. And even just the act of writing can be so tremendously healing because it's so, it, it's so validating to have it down on paper, write it longhand, you know, get yourself away from your phone, every other electronic device or something like that. Go s- sit somewhere with a notebook and a pen and vomit. You can burn those pages if you want to, and that can be highly symbolic. You can feed them to the ducks. I don't know, whatever whatever it is um, you do. And even just that kind of catharsis to get a timeline in your mind or, or just say all the things without worry of actually, you know, having to say it to that person, that can be a really, really powerful thing. I mean, I'm, right now I'm finishing up reading um, Chanel Miller's memoir, and it was um, the woman who some years ago didn't get the appropriate amount of justice when she had uh, been uh, sexually assaulted by the Stanford swimmer. Um, and she wrote a victim impact statement that was, it went viral. It is is so powerful. But she was talking about going through and just putting, committing it to paper because paper is only a certain degree, or maybe she was typing it, I don't know. But paper is only a certain degree of commitment. But it is that thing that sort of, you know, that loosens the jar lid <laughs> as, as, as needed. And then you can do with it what you want and you can carry it in your pocket. You can, um, you know, set it on fire. You can flush it. You can do whatever, but you showed up for yourself and you were your own witness in that moment. And that is a really powerful thing that allows you to, you know, have some sort of comfort and, and vent there. So I might just say like, what's the, you know, imagine that conversation or just imagine what you want to say mm-hmm. and, and, and write it down. Yeah. Yeah, and letter writer, you say, um, I don't know if it's productive to remind him of something he probably already regrets. And so I'll just kind of end with, it would be productive if you got to, you know, speak honestly about what he did to you. If that felt important to you, that would be productive. And for him, it would be a gift. It would not be comfortable or fun or easy. But if, you know, he really is the kind of person that you describe now, 
and he truly, truly regrets molesting you when he was young himself, this would be one of the best things that could happen to him. It would give him a chance to be honest. It would give him a chance to reckon with what he did. It would give him an opportunity to um, try to make you know ongoing living amends, um, to deal with it, to process it, um, and to you know live life on a different foundation than just, boy, I hope she doesn't remember. Boy, I hope we never have to talk about it. So that's one way that it could be productive. And again, that doesn't mean you should or shouldn't do it for, by, for the virtue of like improving his soul. But just if part of you is afraid, there's no point, you know, a possible point for you would be like real freedom um, and, and honesty and a possible point of productivity for him would be um, a chance to, you know, get right. So again, you never have to do this if it doesn't feel right to you. But if you ever decide that you want to, I want you to have so many people in your corner. I want you to have a script. I want you to get a chance to say it over and over in your head, to think about exactly what you want to say, to make plans with a friend afterwards, to like go on a long walk, get tea together so that you're not going to be like alone or in an like open-ended five-hour conversation with him with no end in sight where you're like, wait, 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 I haven't eaten lunch yet. I'm, I'm freaking out. Yeah. Aftercare is absolutely a question I like to ask people is, what are you going to do to be kind for yourself tonight? Or what are you going to do to be okay tonight? Yeah. Or even just like, what's your out? And I, I, I usually try to apply this to all kinds of difficult conversations, not just on this scale, but even like something like a breakup, like you need to have somebody who's going to text you an hour in so that you do not end up having one of those eight hour breakups that take all day and you <laughs> oh God, lose like yes. half your body weight through tears. I did that yeah. once in college and I really wish that in retrospect, I had had a plan because if, man, if you don't have an out plan for an awkward conversation, you just never are going to work up the courage to be like, okay, I leave now. (laughs) Yes. Well, Kat, I think we have solved all of the world's problems for the day. I'm proud of us. Um, I'm proud of us too. Um, Thank you again uh, for, for helping me advise the people today and have a fabulous rest of your day. Thank you. You as well. Thank you for joining us on Big Mood, Little Mood with me, Danny Lavery. Our producer is Phil Circus, who also composed our theme music. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash mood to sign up to subscribe or hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're using right now. Thanks. Also, if you can, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to know what you think. If you want more Big Mood, Little Mood, you should join Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. Members get an extra episode of Big Mood, Little Mood every Friday, and you'll get to hear more advice and conversations with the guest. And as a Slate Plus member, you'll also be supporting the show. Go to slate.com forward slash mood plus to sign up. It's just $1 for your first month. If you'd like me to read your letter on the show, maybe you need a little advice, maybe some big advice, head to slate.com slash mood to find our Big Mood, Little Mood listener question form, or find a link in the description on the platform you're using right now. Thanks for listening. And here's a preview of our Slate Plus episode coming this Friday. If somebody is like has enough presence of mind to say, are you mad at me or are you mad at yourself for not setting boundaries that I choose to set? They've got enough presence of mind to stop yelling. And again, I'm with you. Like, I get that there's like yelling versus screaming. I get that like sometimes raising your voice during an argument is not necessarily a sign that you need to break up. But letter writer, it's also fine if you're just like, God, she yells and then 
when I stop yelling, she doesn't stop and she's bitchy about it. Like, you might just decide she's kind of an asshole sometimes. And you get to decide, do I think she's an asshole enough of the time that I'm no longer as thrilled about this relationship as I thought I was? To listen to the rest of that conversation, join Slate Plus now at slate.com forward slash mood.